Remain standing for the sermon text from Romans chapter 1. Listen to God's word. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in his holy scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all Gentiles for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing on the preaching of his word. Father, open our ears so that we can hear. Open our eyes so that we can see the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ which is your gospel, the gospel that you promised beforehand. Help us to understand, believe, and then to go from here doing your word so that we are not only hearers, but also doers. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, asking for his help. Amen. Please be seated. If you didn't get a handout... There are several back there. I think Sean's got a pretty good stack. If you need one, you could probably lift your hand and he could bring it to you. Uh, It's got the outline. It's also got a translation that I'll be referring to during the sermon. And I want to just say up front here that in providing a translation like this, it's not meant to undermine the other translations that you might use or that I just read from, from the New King James Um, multiplying translations is a good thing. It helps us get at different aspects of the text. And so that's why I'll be doing this when I do it is is to help you see maybe some things that one or two translations may not, uh, that that you use regularly, may not bring out. Uh, So what I'll probably end up doing on the week so we have a handout like this, I'll, I'll read from the New King James and then during the sermon refer to to my translation. And today we do enter into a new series on the book of Romans. We'll be here for a couple years walking through this letter paragraph by paragraph. And I'm looking forward to doing that with you all. In the preface to his commentary on Romans, Martin Luther wrote, This letter is truly the most important piece in the New Testament. It is purest gospel. It is well worth a Christian's while not only to memorize it word for word, but also to occupy himself with it daily, as though it were the daily bread of the soul. It is impossible to read or to meditate on this letter too much or too well. The more one deals with it, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. That's how he opened his preface. And at the very end of his preface, after he had given an overview of the book, he writes this. We find in this letter, then, 
the richest possible teaching about what a Christian should know. The meaning of law, gospel, sin, punishment, grace, faith, righteousness, Christ, God, good works, love, hope, and the cross. We learn how we are to act toward everyone, toward the virtuous and the sinful, toward the strong and the weak, friend and foe, and toward ourselves. Paul bases everything firmly on Scripture and proves his points with examples from his own experience and from the prophets so that nothing more could be desired. He continues, Therefore, it seems that St. Paul, in writing this letter, wanted to compose a summary of the whole of Christian and evangelical teaching, which would also be an introduction to the whole Old Testament. Yes, Old Testament. Without doubt, whoever takes this letter to heart possesses the light and power of the Old Testament. Therefore, each and every Christian should make this letter the habitual and constant object of his study. God grant us his grace to do so. Amen. End quote. John Calvin wrote this in his introduction, preface to Romans, his Romans commentary. When anyone gains a knowledge of this epistle, he has an entrance opened to him to all the most hidden treasures of Scripture. End quote. William Tyndale, the English Bible translator, said, the epistle, this epistle is the principal and most excellent part of the New Testament. It is a light and a way unto the whole Scripture. Tyndale goes on to agree with and echo Luther's thoughts about how everyone should memorize it and study it daily. And then he says, No man verily can read it too oft or study it too well. For the more it is studied, the easier it is. The more it is chewed, the pleasanter it is. And the more it is searched, the preciouser things are found in it. So great a treasure of spiritual things lieth hid therein. End quote. Romans is perhaps the most powerful and most influential piece of literature ever written. It's been the force behind the most notable conversions in church history. And it sparked Martin Luther's Protestant Reformation. The most brilliant theologian of the early church, arguably of of the entire church age, Augustine, was converted while reading from Romans 13. Luther recovered the doctrine of justification by faith alone by meditating on Romans 1, verse 17. John Bunyan's inspiration for Pilgrim's Progress came from his study of Romans in the Bedford jail, in his Bedford jail cell. Paul wrote Romans in A.D. 57 during his third missionary journey while he was ministering to the saints in Corinth. In verses 11 and 12, which we'll look at next week of chapter 1, Paul expresses his desire to go to Rome eventually so that he and the Christians there 
could be mutually encouraged, he said, by each other's faith. So he longed to be with these Christians that he'd never met, most of whom he'd never met. He also hoped to establish Rome as a bridgehead for his missionary journey to Spain. He needed the churches in Rome to be the base for his support, uh, for the support of his Spanish mission. And, and he hopes in this letter to unify. There was, there was tension among the believers, among the churches in Rome. And so he hopes in this letter to unify them, to bring unity where there is disunity, and to rally them around his gospel, which is God's gospel, so that they will help him then take the gospel to Spain. And we know there are at least two churches in Rome because in chapter 16, Paul tells his readers to greet the congregation that meets in Priscilla and Aquila's house. So that meant there were multiple congregations in Rome, at least two. Chapter 16 also suggests that Phoebe brought Paul's letter. Paul was, or Phoebe rather, uh, was from not Corinth, but a, a town nearby. And so it appears that she took Paul's letter to Rome so that it could be read to the believers and to the churches there. Nearly 15 years ago, as a pastoral intern, I was asked during an oral theological exam to name a passage in the New Testament that succinctly summarizes the gospel. I think this is the only question I remember from that. My answer was Romans 1, verses 1 to 7, today's sermon text. And to this day, I know uh, no other gospel summary that is so tightly packed as the opening section of Romans. These seven verses are easily the most theologically dense uh, introduction in all of Paul's letters. And part of the reason for this theologically rich opening is that Paul is writing to churches in, in Rome that he didn't plant. These aren't his churches, so to speak. So from the beginning of the letter, Paul wants to persuade the Roman believers that his gospel is orthodox, it's sound, and that his ministry, especially his future mission to Spain, is worth supporting. He also wants their fellowship, when he, when he goes there, he wants their fellowship to be grounded, centered on, rooted in the true gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of God. In these opening verses, Paul emphasizes that his apostleship is in service to God and God's gospel. And the gospel that Paul proclaims is no novelty. It, it, it wasn't cooked up between the Testaments. It, it, it's not something that Paul or anyone else came up with recently. It's the good news of what God has done in Christ. And this message is rooted in the Old Testament Scriptures, going all the way back to the beginning, as we'll see. In verses 1 to 7 of Romans, Paul addresses his calling, his gospel, his goal, and his audience. 
His calling is the result of God's grace in Christ. His gospel is the message, content of the message of God's grace in Christ. His goal, you might say goals, are the fruit of God's grace in Christ. And then his audience is the recipients of God's grace in Christ. Paul speaks of his calling, the first point, point there on your outline, from two angles. He is God's slave and he is God's apostle. Verse 1 says, Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated out for the gospel of God. In the Old Testament, Moses and Joshua and Caleb and King David are each referred to as the slave of the Lord. In most Bibles, it gets translated the servant of the Lord, right? Literally, slave or bondservant of Yahweh, of Yahweh. So Paul does something very important and fascinating in verse 1. He takes the phrase bondservant of Yahweh, and in the place of Yahweh, what does he put? He replaces Yahweh in this phrase with Jesus Christ. So right out of the gates, Paul identifies Jesus as Israel's God. God incarnate, Yahweh in the flesh. And Paul sees himself chiefly as a slave of the God-man. Paul doesn't operate on his own authority. He, he, he didn't come up with this gospel or his commission on his own. He's a bondservant, a slave whose master is Jesus Christ. He doesn't do his own will, he does Christ's will. The modern world likes to, to talk about self-esteem and identity and self-image, those, those kinds of things. A, a key to Paul's self-image is servanthood. We see this over and over in his writings. At the root of the psyche of this incredibly gifted and, and fruitful man is servanthood. His identity is as a slave of Christ at heart. And if you, are, if, if you are to be fruitful for God, you must see yourself first and foremost as a slave of God, a bondservant of God and of His people. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Jesus said that whoever wants to be great among you must be your slave is the word there now, of course you can't be a faithful slave to your brethren faithful slave of the people of God until you first become a slave of Jesus so do you see yourself as Christ's slave under his authority what he says goes what his word says, you believe and then you do it. Is that a part of your identity, your self-image? Is that how you think of yourself? Paul is also God's apostle. Apostle means 
sent out one, sent one. And when God saved Paul on the road to Damascus, he called him to a mission at the same time. And so if you're doing the, the Bible reading program uh, with me uh, that we started, some of us started, then not too long ago you read Acts 9 where Jesus tells Ananias, Paul is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. Paul was separated out, set apart for the purpose of taking the gospel of God to Jews, yes, but especially to the non-Jews throughout the whole world. In the New Testament, non-Jews are referred to as Gentiles. In Romans eleven thirteen, Paul says that he is an apostle to the Gentiles. And his call to be a sent one of God is just as much a matter of God's grace as his salvation is. In fact, his salvation and his call to apostleship happen simultaneously. In verse 5, the phrase grace and apostleship is really one idea. Uh, one, one commentator said maybe we should translate it gracious apostleship just so we see how connected these two words are. Paul's apostleship is purely the result of the grace that Paul experienced on the road to Damascus. And so both our salvation from sin and, then the, uh, and the mission that God sends us out on are products of God's grace working in us and through us. You do nothing on your own in your own strength. It's not as though God saved you and then he, you know, he zaps some kind of strength in you and now in your own strength you do the will of God. It's God's grace from beginning to end and all the way through. This was true of Paul and it's true of us. The overriding function of Paul's enslavement and apostleship is to proclaim the gospel. Specifically, God's gospel. In the very last sentence of the book of Romans, Paul refers to the gospel as my gospel. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, etc. But first, it is the gospel of God. Paul didn't invent it. Invent it. it became Paul's gospel when he received it from God, from his Lord. And so the gospel predates Paul. Paul's gospel predates Paul. In fact, the gospel predates the birth of Christ. Look with me at verses 2 to 4 in your handout. The gospel that Paul spread was the gospel of God. Verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David's seed according to the flesh. Verse 4, who was appointed son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness at his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. There's a lot going on there in those three verses. Let's first just think about that word gospel. We use it a lot. You know, it's in our, our, our Christian vocabulary. 
it doesn't really get used outside the church. The Greek word is euangelion, which means it's a compound word. It's two words put together, and it means good message, good news. In the New Testament, the euangelion, the gospel, is the good news that you can be saved from God's wrath by repenting of your sins and putting your faith in the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is not advice about what you must do. It's not commandments to obey in order to be saved. The good news is not do this, this, and this, and then you can know God and have peace with him and have your sins washed away and have eternal life. Every religion other than the Christian religion is, at the end of the day, performance-based. And, and performance-based religions offer no good news because they contain no good news. Only the Christian faith offers good news because it's not based on your performance, your work, your doing. God's gospel is based on Christ's work, Christ's performance, Christ's doing, Christ's righteousness. Before Martin Luther became the reformer, the Protestant reformer, the man of the Reformation, his religion was performance-based. He believed that his salvation depended on being basically good. If he was good enough, he might earn favor with God. His salvation depended on his good works, his faithfulness, his performance, and eventually he came to the realization that this is actually very, very bad news. Because even though Luther was a moral monk, basically moral monk with a squeaky, queen, uh, squeaky clean reputation, at heart he was a wretched sinner who needed to be saved from his own sin. And that salvation needed to come from outside of him. Is your, is your concept of the gospel, when you think about what is the gospel, what is God's gospel, is your concept of it mainly about you or what you do? Is it centered on you in some way? Or is it mainly about Christ, his person, and his works on your behalf? Now, I, I bet that most of us here, maybe every one of us here, knows the right answer to the question I just asked. Right? You were thinking, that's just one of those filler questions that preachers use, Right? We all know the answer to that question. Of course we say the gospel is about what Christ has done for me. Not, not about what I do for Christ. Not what I bring to the table. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. We know that. And yet so often and so easily our hearts condemn us. And we find ourselves wondering if God still loves us after what we have done, after we've sinned so badly yet again. 
One of the things Paul is going to teach us over the next couple of years, over and over again in this book, is that the gospel of God is really the gospel of grace. It's gift. It's one of the, one of the concepts we'll need to drill down on is gift. Whole books have been written just on Paul's understanding of gift and how he uses that word gift, and it's important. God's grace is totally free. It's a gift with no strings attached. The good news is the grace of God in Christ. And the grace of God in Christ is not based in the slightest on anything you have done or not done or on anything you will do or not do. The grace of God in Christ gives you a right standing before God that is completely apart from the law from obedience, which means it's completely independent of your good works. Your, your right standing before God is not based at all on your good works. Now, the, the world generally operates, we generally operate in the world on the merit system, right? It's just how a lot of things work, especially at work at school, on the basis of works, right? So if you're a student, you you go to class, you show up, you listen to the instruction, uh, maybe you take notes, you study hard, you work diligently, and then you take the test. And, and, And your standing in the class depends on how well you do on that test. The gospel of grace operates within that system, but the difference is that you're not the one taking the test. You're not the one doing the meriting. You're not the one earning anything. You're the one. You're not the one that sits in the desk that day and takes that test that you should have studied for. With the gospel, the teacher sits in your desk, sits in your chair, and. He takes the test for you, and he gives you the credit. It's, it's as if you showed up to class without having studied at all. You were definitely going to get an F on the final, which meant you were going to flunk the whole class. But instead of that outcome that you deserved, that inevitable outcome, the teacher sat in your seat and took the test for you. And, and the result is not only that you escape getting kicked out of maybe school, we'll say in this analogy, you also get an A in the class. All analogies break down at some point, but the gospel is even more radical than that illustration. Okay? The gospel is even more radical than that illustration, that absurd illustration. Paul says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, some translations say the free gift of God, it's redundant, but we're just trying to get at this freeness of this gift. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's free in Christ, no strings attached. 
Paul sums up the gospel faithfully, helpfully, in Romans 3, 23 to 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus, or through Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a propitiation through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Propitiation refers to the, the, the satisfaction of God's anger and wrath against you and your sin. God satisfied his own judgment against your sin by condemning Jesus on the cross in your place. Jesus took the curse. Today in Sunday school, we talked about that curse that fell upon the earth in the Garden of Eden when Adam sinned. And that curse is a personal curse. It's not just as if the, the creation was wired in such a way to curse if this happened. It's God's personal curse coming down on the world and particularly on humanity. And Christ was born into that cursed situation. He bore the curse his whole life and then in an intensified way bore that curse, bore that shame, bore that condemnation on the cross. He took the cross in your place. So while the grace of God is free to you, it was not free to God. He, he, he had to pay a high price for you to redeem you. In the Old Testament, when someone was under the death penalty, they could be sometimes, not every time, but sometimes, depending on what the sin was, what the, they could be redeemed from that death penalty. Christ redeemed us from the death penalty, from eternal death by shedding his blood on the cross. And so if you are a Christian, you are bought and paid for. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body, Paul says. That's what God's love has generated on your behalf, your purchase, your redemption. The gospel, according to verse 2, constitutes the fulfillment of all the saving promises found in Israel's holy scriptures. The gospel is what God has been promising for ages. It's, it's God's ancient promise going all the way back to the beginning. God promised Adam and Eve that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. That's the first gospel promise in Scripture, in Genesis 3. As we read today from Genesis 12, he promised Abraham that the whole world would be blessed through him, through his seed, as he says later in Genesis. He, he promised David that his seed would sit on the throne forever. Our gospel lesson today highlighted the Davidic sonship of David. I didn't even pick those. In Isaiah, God promised to send a divine servant 
who would be wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities, whose chastisement would be for our peace, whose, by, whose stripes would heal us. All, all of these promises, all of God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus. And the worldwide scope of those promises are becoming a reality through Paul's mission to the Gentiles, to the world. That's, that's kind of what the whole book of Romans is about from one angle. And so the content of this gospel is not a what, it's a who. Do you see that? The gospel is about God's eternal son. And, and so at, at the, if you look in, in the translation at the beginning of verse 3 and, and then the end of verse 4, there it, it, um, are kind of bookends concerning his son and then at the end, Jesus Christ our Lord. And then we get some stuff about him in the middle that's important we'll get to in a minute. But it's all yes and amen in God's eternal son. The gospel centers on the Son, on Jesus. And we see this in verses 3 and 4. The gospel isn't fundamentally about us and our lives. It it isn't about your hopes and your dreams and your plans. There are many preachers who will tell you that it is, if that's what you want. Rather, It concerns God's eternal son. It it concerns the one who is sitting on the throne in Isaiah 6. That wonderful chapter where Isaiah sees Jesus sitting on the throne. It concerns the eternal word who was with God and who was God in the beginning. It concerns the one who took on flesh and became a God-man. The one who, according to verse 4, who was appointed Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness at His resurrection from the dead. Now, the right translation there in verse 4 is appointed rather than declared. And so what does it mean that Jesus was appointed Son of God in power at His resurrection? Well, it obviously doesn't mean that this is when God became or when Jesus became the eternal Son of God, right? That, that doesn't work. And yet the eternal Son's resurrection from the dead was a unique moment for him. And that's the point that Paul's making here. The resurrection and ascension of Christ marked the first time the Son of God sat on his heavenly throne as the God-man. Okay, we see him sitting on the throne as Isaiah 6, you know, nearly 800 years earlier. But this is, at his resurrection and ascension, it's the first time he sits on that throne as the God-man, as the fully divine and fully human Davidic king. In Isaiah 6, in the year 757 B.C. or so, Isaiah sees into heaven... And there he sees Christ sitting on the throne. John 12 confirms, remember when we went through John, we saw in John 12 that Isaiah is seeing Jesus Christ. That's what John says. And at that point, Christ is fully God, but he's not yet human. 
He, he wouldn't become human for another 750 years or so. It's the same figure who's called the Son of Man in Daniel 7, even though he's not yet a descendant of David. And so in Isaiah 6, Christ is sitting on the eternal throne, but not as a descendant of David, not as that Davidic king. At that point, he hadn't yet become a descendant of David according to the flesh, as verse 3 puts it. So, so the glorious scene in Isaiah 6, we could throw in Daniel 7, that it does not fulfill God's promise that one of David's descendants will sit on the throne forever. But... In AD 30, when Christ was raised from the dead and seated at God's right hand, God's promise that he would put a descendant of David on the throne forever, that's the promise, forever. There'll be one forever. That promise was finally fulfilled in the first century, in the year of our Lord. In the spring of AD 30, Jesus Christ, our Lord, our incarnate God, was, for the first time, appointed Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness at His resurrection from the dead. This is the first time Christ sat on His heavenly throne as both Davidic King and as the eternal Son of God. That's a beautiful verse. Just as God's gospel is Paul's gospel, so also God's aim for the gospel is Paul's aim. Paul's goal in verse 5 is to bring about the obedience of faith, the salvation of Gentiles, and preeminently, glory to Christ's name, the glory of Christ's name. Verse 5 through whom we received grace and apostleship to bring about, for the sake of his name, the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. It's not uncommon for an epistle writer to say, we, or a gospel writer, to say we when referring to himself alone. It, it, it's kind of like what we call the, the royal we, you know, it, um, it, it happens in various cultures and, and literature. And that's what Paul does in verse 5 when he says, we received grace and apostleship. He's talking about his apostleship, his unique apostleship, which becomes clear as he refers to himself in the first person in verses 8 to 15. Uh, and, and, and of course, his apostleship to the Gentiles is unique. He's not talking about multiple people here being called and commissioned for this task. He's only referring to himself. And we witness this same phenomenon, by the way, at the end of John's gospel, if you remember that last sermon uh, on the second to the last verse in John. John does a similar thing. Paul's goal is the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith, which is the obedience that springs from saving faith in Christ. From wholehearted trust in Jesus. The obedience that flows from faith in Christ cannot save you. So listen to this. It cannot save you. We've already, we've already covered that, right? You're saved by faith in Christ alone. But saving faith in Christ always, always, without fail, fail always produces 
Obedience. O- obedience never saves, but saving faith always generates obedience. A person who is saved by grace is always growing and living in grace. Luther put it best, and no one has improved upon it, when he said, We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. We are saved by faith alone, but but that faith that saves, that faith that is the instrument, the means of our salvation that unites us to Christ and his righteousness, that faith that saves is never alone. It always is accompanied by fruit, by works, by obedience. So do you have the obedience of faith that Paul is talking about here? Is it, does, does, does obedience characterize your life? Of course you're a sinner still. I'm a sinner still. We'll never stop sinning until we die. And if we say we have stopped, we make God out to be a liar. We deceive ourselves, right? But are you growing in that obedience that flows from faith? Are you growing in the grace of God in Christ? Another way of getting at this, as James 2 puts it, is is your faith living and active? Or is it dead? Is it dead? Does it have a heartbeat or not? If your faith is dead, if it's not working, if it never really lands anywhere on the ground, if if it never makes itself known, if it never manifests itself in the world, if, if it's not abiding in Christ and therefore being fruitful, if it's not killing sin, if it's not producing the fruit of the Spirit, if it doesn't show any signs of life, if it's, if it's you know, dead on the vine, then, then you're not saved and you need to be born again. James 2.14 What good is it, my brethren, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? We might be tempted to read verse 5 and think that the salvation of the Gentiles, you know, that, that obedience of faith that Paul wants to see among the Gentiles is Paul's main goal, right? That, that's what, what, what's his aim? What's Paul want to happen? Well, he, he wants to see Gentiles converted, right? That's the main thing. That's at the top. But look more carefully at verse 5. Bringing Gentiles to faith is not Paul's ultimate end in life. The key phrase in verse 5 is, for the sake of his name. That is the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. The chief end of Paul's mission to the Gentiles is to bring glory to the Lord Jesus. Indeed, the chief end of every man, your chief end, is to glorify Christ by doing everything you do for the sake of his name. Colossians 3.17, And whatever you do, in word or deed... Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Finally, in verse 6, Paul refers to his audience. 
the Roman recipients of his letter. The first thing he says to them is that they themselves are among those Gentiles that he's referring to, and they have been called by Jesus Christ, just as many other Gentiles have been called by Jesus Christ, among whom you are also, Paul says. In other words, among the Gentiles, you are also you who are called by Jesus Christ. So a special group of Gentiles who are called by Jesus Christ, they are now part of that that group. And this indicates that the Christians in Rome were at least predominantly Gentiles. Uh, We know from later in Romans that there there must have been uh, some Jews there as well because they part of the tension is the is the the Jew Gentile relationship some of these Jews were having a hard time letting go of of the ceremonies of the old covenant and that created tension and so Paul has to address that in Romans 14 for example but predominantly he's writing to Gentiles as he says there in verse 6 So the majority of the churches are non-Jewish Christians. And then in verse 7, Paul issues his greeting. To all in Rome who are loved by God, to those called to be holy. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. To say that Roman believers are loved by God and called to be holy, those are pregnant phrases to say that these roman believers are called by god to be holy and loved by god beloved of god applies language to the church and to gentiles no less that was reserved for israel in the old testament and this is good news for us since we are gentiles right at the beginning of this sermon i i I mentioned the the world's fascination, maybe obsession with self-image and identity. And in some ways, this is unavoidable, and it's not, it's not all bad. It, because we all want to know who we are, how we're situated, how, how we're supposed to view ourselves, what our relationship is to others, to God. Those questions are important. If you're a Christian... The central truth you need to believe about yourself is that you are loved by God. You are among the beloved of God, and God loves you. And if God loves you, it doesn't matter who hates you, right? The whole world could despise you, but if God loves you, that's the main thing. That's essentially all that matters. If you're a believer, not only does God love you, but he loves you fully and flawlessly. His love for you is complete. It's already perfect. Your spouse doesn't love you flawlessly or fully, nor do you love your spouse flawlessly or fully. Children, your parents don't love you flawlessly or fully all the time. The people sitting next to you, behind you, in front of you, they don't love you flawlessly and fully. 
as much as they may love you. Neither do your church leaders or your boss or your co-workers or your neighbor, your colleagues. No one on earth loves you perfectly. Nor do you love anyone else on earth perfectly. It goes both ways for you. Only God loves flawlessly and fully because he is love. And so even the people on earth who love you the most, think about who that might be right now. They love you with a love that is far, far inferior to your heavenly Father's love for you in Christ. Jesus says in Matthew seven eleven, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Paul doesn't mention the believer's love for God in verse 7. He only mentions the love that is fundamental. The love that is first. God's love for the believer. 1 John 4.10 This is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation of for our sins. The order in verse 7 is important. Paul says they're loved by God before he says they're called to be holy. That's instructive for us. Your ability to live a holy life pleasing to the Lord depends entirely on your awareness of and reception of God's love for you, your awareness of how much he loves you. A person can only exhale holiness after he has breathed in God's love. Fellow believers, we are loved by God. You are loved by God. That's that's great news. That's wonderful news. Never, never get over that. Never let that become boring and old news. Figure out how to regularly rediscover God's love for you, you know, for the first time, again and again. God's love for you extends back into eternity. It's rooted in the heart of God. His love for you existed before you did. Okay, so that just shows how independent of your performance God's love for you is. And so so meditate on on that thought, on how his love for you is rooted in the heart of God in eternity past. Let, Let that thought penetrate your heart this week, today right now. And then let that good news that seems too good to be true, let it fuel in, in, in you the life of holiness to which you've been called. You've been called to be holy. And you can do that because God loves you and God has saved you. You can love God 
because he loves you. God loved you so much that he made peace with you through the gospel of grace in Christ. Grace to you and peace, Paul says. You have peace with God in Christ through the grace of God in Christ. The gospel of grace in Christ is this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Let's pray. God, thank you for keeping your promises, for sending your eternal son to take on our flesh, to enter into this fallen, sinful, groaning world, to redeem us from your curse to redeem us from eternal death and to give us eternal life. We confess that this is the only gospel, the only good news. It's yours that you promised from the beginning. And it concerns your son who has saved us, the son in whom we live, to whom we've been united who is the object of our faith. Oh God, give us gratitude. Give us wonder this week at your gospel so that we can respond to it by living it out in lives of obedience, the obedience that comes from faith in Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.